G'day, everyone. I'll pray for us before we begin. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this uh, incredible speech of the Apostle Paul that we have the opportunity to look at together this morning. Uh, and we pray, though, that we would not just hear it as a great and famous sermon, but we would hear it as the very Word of God. Uh, and that we would then give it the attention it deserves. But uh, we also pray that we want, would not just have ears to listen, but we would also have hearts soft to respond in faith and repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we live in one of the most beautiful cities in the world. I think that's just generally accepted. There's no doubt about that. Even over breakfast this morning, Victoria and I were having coffee, uh, and she didn't know what I was going to say at the start of my sermon, and we were just looking at something in the paper 20 things to do in Sydney and Victoria said why would you live anywhere other than Sydney you know just this is the most beautiful city in the world why why would you live anywhere else Uh, I was reading about something another thing about things to do for international guests in Sydney when I were before the Konings got here uh, and thinking about what would someone from the south of France want to do in Sydney and on this thing of a guide to Sydney it said just tell people to catch a ferry You know, people pay hundreds of dollars to go on a harbour cruise. Just tell people, catch a ferry. Like, that is something more wonderful, more beautiful than you do in most cities in the world. And yet, if you go on a ferry with Sydney-siders, what do Sydney-siders do while they're going on the most beautiful harbour in the world? (laughs) Look down at our phones. Because we just take it for granted. We live in this beautiful place. And we go, I don't care, whatever. Sydney, though, is just one of those cities that people say, I want to get there. I want to visit there. I want to see that city. There's other cities like that, of course. There's Paris. There's New York, there's London, uh, and another one of those cities, I think for slightly different reasons, is Athens. Has anyone here ever been to Athens? Who's ever been to Athens? Aren't we a well-travelled bunch? There you go. I expect the people from Greek heritage to have been to Athens, but look at all these other people, you know. Uh, I've never been to Athens, but then again, there's lots of places I haven't been, so that, that's why if anyone wants to pay for a trip to Athens so that I can better understand the book of Acts, feel free. But uh, here is a picture of the skyline of Athens, Uh, It's pretty beautiful, isn't it? Uh, With Athens, though, I think the reason people want to go there is the history. Uh, Athens is the place where philosophy was born, where where democracy was born. People want to say, I want to go to those places where where Plato would have taught or where Socrates would have taught or where where these thoughts had their beginning. There's other people shaking and saying, no, no, I just want to go there because I just like travelling. But no, but that's why I would go to Athens, is for the history of it. In our chapter today, the Apostle Paul has come to Athens, but he hasn't come as a tourist. You remember he's on his second missionary journey, if you bring up the map, uh, you'll notice my bad maps have been replaced by Troy's maps, thanks for the feedback everyone on my map making ability. Uh, but uh, So what you'll remember is on this, this second journey, Paul with his travelling companions has gone through what we would call Turkey. But then he had that vision and said, oh, you've got to go to Europe. And so he went over to what, what is, was called then Macedonia. Uh, and so there he, he went to towns like Thessalonica and Philippi uh, and Berea. And you remember wherever he went, what happened? He preached the gospel. People became Christians. Churches were born. Remember how amazing that is. This is the first time the gospel's gone to any of these places. Churches were born. But then something else happened in every town. Persecution started. Opposition rose up. So he's been doing this. Uh, we last saw him in Berea. Uh, and so, but now he's suddenly in Athens. Now, how did he get there? He didn't get there on a cruise ship. He didn't get there via an, a nice flight, if you like. He gets there basically because his friends bundle him out of Berea. 
because they're, they're fearful for his life. Uh, his mates Silas and Timothy stay behind to keep encouraging the church there. Uh, but he's basically then sort of left on his own in this great city, possibly the most important city in Greece. Uh, and he's left there with no friends, no nothing. This is a pretty tough time for Paul as we come to this passage. So here he is on his own in a new city. He knows no one. And so he sits there and he looks out over that beautiful skyline. Except it would have been different then. It wasn't ruins then. All those buildings at this time, all those, Athens was in its pomp. All those buildings were as they were meant to be. So Paul looks out at this incredible view that we would pay thousands of dollars to go and see. And what does he see? Look with me at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul couldn't admire those beautiful buildings when he knew they were built to worship false gods. Paul didn't see a beautiful skyline. Paul didn't see wonderful human ingenuity. He didn't see the centre of human thought and philosophy. He didn't even see a different culture to admire. He saw a city of lost people giving glory to idols rather than to the one true God. Paul looked out. And he saw a city of people without hope in this world, wasting their time, frankly, arguing about false religions, arguing about human philosophy, and it grieved him to his heart. The word there, it has the sense of anger in verse 16. He's actually angry on God's behalf. He looks out and he thinks, how can these people ignore the one true God and give glory to other things? He looked out at this great city, which counted itself as the height of human wisdom at that time, and he looked out and he saw them through God's eyes. He looked at, it was similar, you know that passage where Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he grieves for Jerusalem, he weeps for Jerusalem. I think that Paul is, is in many ways mimicking Jesus here. Here are these people lost, without sheep without, like sheep without a shepherd, ignoring the God who made them, unaware that there'll be a day when God calls them to account. I wonder, do you look at Sydney the same way? I mean, I talked about how we see the beauty of our city, but do you see Sydney the same? Sometimes I sit in a cafe or I sit on a train to the city and I see people rushing around, caught up in their work, caught up in their study, their shopping, their sport. And I feel for Sydney what Paul felt for Athens. I grieve for our city. I grieve for a city that glorifies idolatry in every sense, whether it's the idolatry of false religions or it's the idolatry much more common in Sydney of greed or the idolatry of lust. Our city loves false idols but uses the name of Jesus as a swear word. Our city delights in immorality and then says it's proud of it. Our city calls sin good and good things bad. If you don't sometimes look at our city and grieve, if you don't sometimes look at our city and despair for people, I'm actually worried for you because it suggests you don't yet know Jesus. Because I think if you know Jesus, the fact that so many people are lost and live their life with no reference to God, if that doesn't make you grieve, there, there is something wrong. The danger though is that Christians, in our troubled spirit, we then withdraw from our city. 
That's the danger, that Christians look out over Sydney, like Paul looked out over Athens, and our response is to withdraw. We turn inwards, we bunker down, and we say, well, just as well here in our little building, we've got it sorted. You know, uh, and all we do is actually stand in judgment over our city. I think we see that in a lot of American Christianity, sadly, where people seem to think their job is to condemn sinners and, and change the world by, by working through the government and, and imposing Christian morality on the country. That's not Paul's response. Paul's troubled spirit, even his anger, doesn't lead him to judge other people. He leads him to want to share the gospel with them. He wants them to turn from their idols and come to know the hope that he has found. He wants them to come to know the one true God. So let's look at what he does. Come with me. I've called the next part. Paul offers people the true knowledge of God. Come to verse 17. It says, so, that is because of what Paul saw, so... He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul starts with the Jews. He always did that. The gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Hope you've seen that in Acts. But then he talked with anyone who would listen. He basically went to Westfield, Hurstville. That's, that's what Paul did here. That's what it's saying. He went to the equivalent of Westfield, stood there and talked to anyone who wanted to talk. Now, at this point, I just want to draw out two important things to see about Paul, on the one hand, and then two responses people make. So about Paul, I've got a Paul's method. First thing I want to point out, do you see that word there, reasoned? I love how it says there, he reasoned with people. The word has a sense of argued. It has the sense of, of disgust. He, he didn't just come and download his views. He talked, he argued the case. He, he answered their objections that, that came back to him. I just want to encourage you, the gospel stands up to any question. The gospel stands up to any objection. Uh, th that is the reality. And to see people come to know Jesus, you need to be willing to answer their objections. You need to be willing to reason with them. But to do that, you need to know the grounds of your faith. If you don't know what you believe and why you believe it, how can you reason with other people? How can you respond to their objections? You need to know what you believe and you need to know why it's true. That's the first thing to see there. Paul reasoned with people. But then secondly, I want you to see Paul's message was so simple and unchangeable. Look down at verse 18. It says he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So yes, he argues with people. Yes, he reasons with people. But in the end, it's all to tell them this very simple message. The good news about Jesus. That Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus died for our sins to pay the price that we deserve. That Jesus is risen from the dead and so we can have eternal life. That is the good news about Jesus. But he also told them, see there, the news of the resurrection. That's not the resurrection of Jesus. So you see, we, we sort of think, oh, he, he, he's, it's talking about the resurrection. When we hear the word resurrection, we think the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible says, no, the resurrection of Jesus is just the first of what will be many. What he's talking about here is our resurrection. The day in the future when Jesus returns and every person will be raised from the dead to give an account for their lives. And some will be raised to eternal life and some to eternal death. That's the simple message he shared, the good news about Jesus and the good news about the resurrection. That's what he reasoned with them about. 
to reason with people. I want to encourage you. You do not need a degree in philosophy. When Paul reasoned with these people, we're going to see in a minute, they called him a country bumpkin. They said, he's got no idea. You do not need a degree in philosophy to reason with people. You need to know Jesus. And you need to know the truth about Jesus. You need to know the reason for your hope, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. Come with me now and look at people's responses. I want to see how people responded. I think you see two responses. The first is, a lot of people argued with Paul and mocked him. Look at verse 18. It says, Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, What is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? You can hear the sneer in their voice, can't you? They're not really interested in what he had to say. They're more interested in calling him a pseudo-intellectual. Uh, Epicureans, I'm not going to give you a first-year philosophy lecture here, but Epicureans didn't care about God or the gods. They, they just live for this world. Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Might be an Epicurean sort of line. Many modern-day Sydney-siders are Epicureans. I don't want you to call them that, but that, they probably think, oh, is that the latest restaurant for me to go to? Epic, you know, sounds like it, doesn't it? But no, no but that's, that, that's the, the Sydney lifestyle. It's just... Enjoy the world. This is all you've got. Enjoy it while it lasts. The Stoics were the opposites. They were more like the fatalists. The gods are in control. You can't do anything about it. You can't change it. So just life is hard. Put up with it. Suffer well. That's, there's actually, those two philosophies are alive and well in modern day Sydney, aren't they? But even though they were polar opposites in their views, what they agreed on was mocking Paul. So the one thing they agreed on was Paul was talking nonsense. What's this nonsense you're on about? Our translation says they called him a pseudo-intellectual. It captures their mockery. Literally, they called him a seed picker. Uh, I think they're sort of saying, you are just like some bird that's picked up a few clever ideas and now you, you think you're our equal. You think you're an intellectual like us. You're, you're just a stupid babbler, Paul, is the gist of it. I think it's really helpful to see that. Do not be surprised when people discount the gospel and mock the Christian faith. They did it to Jesus, they did it to Paul, so why on earth wouldn't they do it to us? Don't be surprised when people call Christians names or mock what we believe. But look at the second response. See, some people there, they had misunderstandings, but they were still interested. Look at the rest of verse 18. It says, others replied, he, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities. So they're not mocking Paul, they just don't get it. They're like, are you saying like we worship Zeus and, and Apollos and all these other gods, you've got this God Jesus? Are you telling us there's another God we, who, who, who's a, a foreign God? And is there something about rising from the dead? We don't understand this, what's going on? But even though they hadn't understood it, some of them are interested. Look at verse 19. It says, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of? For what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these ideas mean. These people are not close to becoming Christians yet. It's not like last week's passage where, where the person said, what must I do to be saved, you know, and, and then and there became a Christian. But they're intrigued. They, they, they want to know more. Again, I want to tell you, I think this is really helpful for us to see that reaction, especially as our culture gets less and less Christianised. Uh, 20 years ago... Most Australians did not follow Jesus. The newspapers love to say Christianity is declining or that sort of thing. I think there are just as many Christians in Australia today as there were 20 years ago. What's declined is nominal Christianity. 
You see, 20 years ago, most Australians ticked Christian on the census. Didn't mean they knew Jesus, didn't mean they followed Jesus. But what they knew was the Lord they didn't follow was Jesus. That's what they knew. And if they were going to follow a Lord, it would be Jesus. And so they didn't worship God, but they knew the God they didn't worship was the God of the Bible. It was easier to explain your faith in Jesus then, wasn't it? You know, many people had the gist. People went to Sunday school. People went to youth group. Even if they weren't Christians, they, they had that basic Christian worldview. That's not the case anymore. There, there are whole generations now who've never been to church. They never went to Sunday school. They never went to youth group. Not to mention people who've come from other cultures. I actually think we are in a wonderful time because we now don't have people who've been put off by the, by the badness and the bad job churches have done. So now there's people who just say, tell me about Jesus. I've got no idea. Tell me, I think we're in a wonderful time. But the point is, we shouldn't expect people to be able to understand things in one conversation. That's why we have moved, if you've noticed over the last few years, we've moved our evangelism strategy here at church away from one-off events towards getting people to come and do a course. That's intentional. That's why we do the life course. You see, 20 years ago, there were lots of people around who knew about Jesus. It was just, do I believe him or not? Now you've got to start way back at the beginning with people if they're going to understand. So sometimes, this is the amazing thing, sometimes people will do the life course. They'll do the mortar life course. Then they'll think about it for a while. Then they'll come back and do the life course again. And halfway through the second time doing the mortar life course, they say, so you're saying Jesus died for my sins? And you're thinking, I thought we'd told you that 28 times by now. But you see, that is a radical idea and it takes time for people often. Sometimes people say, what must I do to be saved? But often it takes time for people to process. It can be a long haul helping someone come to know Jesus. If you, if you want to help someone come to know Jesus, it can be a long haul walking alongside them, opening the scriptures with them. And you'll only persevere if you really love that person and you really know how important it is that they meet Jesus. So don't forget, not everyone mocks. Many people want to know more, but it can take time for them to grasp it. But now let's turn to the final part of our passage. Come with me. I've called it Paul's most famous sermon. Look at verse 21. Uh, That's where it starts. So some of these people were so interested, they said, let's take Paul to the Areopagus. Now you've got to understand how big that is. The Areopagus was the place where the great debates happened. This is where all the true thinkers, all the movers and shakers, all the politicians met to argue about ideas, to make decisions for the city. Now, I love a little bit of of how Luke, the writer of Acts, I love how a little bit of his sarcasm pokes through in verse 21. Look there. He says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Is it just me or is there a note of cynicism there? He sounds a bit like me when I talk about university philosophy departments, I think. It's like, just waste your time talking and talking and talking. You never do anything. Well, that's here. And I won't get distracted and share my views of most modern philosophers. But I, th- I think Luke would agree with me. Now, the point is, though, Paul had been at Westfield Hurstville. Now they're saying, come to the main hall at Sydney University. He had been at Westfield Hurst, now they're saying, come to Town Hall, come to Macquarie Street, come to the centre of where people meet to think about big ideas. Now, I think this is probably Paul's most famous recorded sermon. Be aware, though, we're only given a summary as we look at it together. Like most of the sermons in the Gospels and in Acts, 
They're only a summary. Sometimes people argue and they say, but Paul left this out, he didn't say that, or, or that's a, I think that's a bit silly. Luke's given us a summary. But even the summary is masterful. So quickly, come through it with me. First thing I want you to see is how Paul meets them where they're at. Remember, many of these people have never heard of the God of the Bible. Their picture of the world is that there are lots of gods and so they had idols for just about everything. But Paul's introduction is masterful. Look at verse 22. It says, Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. See what he does? See how masterful, really, is the only word I can think of. He, he meets them where they are at, and then he finds a connection to introduce them to God. He says, I can see you're religious. We've got this in common. I can see you're religious. You're open to the idea of the divine, but you're hedging your bets. You know, you've even got an altar for an unknown God. You sort of think, we realise we haven't got this all sorted out. Let me tell, let me tell you about a God you don't know. As I say, it's so clever, but, and this is so important, yes, he meets them where they're at, but he will not leave them there. He meets them where he's at, but then he makes it so clear that the God he is introducing them to is not just one more God to build an idol to, he is the one true God. And so the main point of his sermon is pointing them clearly to the one true God. Come with me through the rest of his talk. I'm just going to go through it quickly. First of all, to point them with God, he starts at the beginning. Remember, they've got no knowledge of God. So firstly, he explains God is the creator of the universe. Look at verse 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. See how clear he is? He, yes, he met them where he's at, but he, said, he then says, You know those so-called gods you worship? Waste of time. Waste of time. There is only one God and you cannot trap him in a little statue. The biggest lie I hear Christians fall into believing is that, there are, that all religions are one path to God. That, that just says I don't actually believe any of them because they're not all one path. They are fundamentally different. What Jesus says is fundamentally different to anything that has ever been said about any other God. And, and Paul's making that point here. There is one God... And you can't trap him in a little statue. God made everything. He rules everything. And because of that, next point he makes is that we owe God everything. Look at verse 25. He says, Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Paul saying the only reason you are alive is because God has given you life. The only reason you can sit here and argue about philosophy is because God has given you a brain. And God has given you breath. And God has given you life. God doesn't need you, but wow, you need him, is Paul's point. God has made you. He's given you life. You owe him everything. And this God, Paul says, he just reinforces the point. He's not just the God of the Jews. He's not just the God of the Greeks. He's not just one of these shrines. God is the God of all people. Look from verse 26. He says, from one man, he, God, has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live, he did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. 
point is God isn't just interested in the Jews down in that place or the Greeks in this place. He is interested in every person on earth because he made Adam and every person on earth is descended from him. And so God is in control of every nation. When the borders change, God's in control. It's part of his plan. And his point is, if people don't know God, it's not God's fault. God's never been far away. God wants you to seek him. The problem is with us, and what he would call in other places, our sin. The problem is that we reject God. We don't reach out. We don't seek him. And so we don't find him. And because of that, Paul's final point is turn back to God because he has set a day of judgment. From verse 30, look with me. It says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God is slow to judge. God has overlooked the ignorance of humanity for thousands of years, Paul is saying. From other parts in Acts, we know Paul would have probably at this point explained how we can have forgiveness through the death of Jesus. But his point here is, there's no excuse for ignorance anymore. Don't keep worshipping your silly idols. Don't keep worshipping these things made of stone and wood. There is one true God. He has set a day when Jesus will come back in glory to judge the living and the dead. So turn back to God now. I reckon the people who said, come and speak to the Areopagus, we're interested in your ideas, would have had their jaws on the ground at this point. They were expecting a philosophical argument. Paul says, every one of you needs to answer to God. What was their response? I've called the last part, the power of the gospel to save. Look from verse 32. It says, some began to ridicule him. What's all this nonsense about, about people rising from the dead? So there was mockery again. That was probably the main response, mockery. Some want to know more. They said, we want to hear more about this. Tell us more about this, Jesus. But how wonderful that after Paul had walked away, look at verse 34. It says, however, some men joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Don't ever forget... The gospel is the power of salvation. I love verses like this in Acts. Other people are mocking him. Other people are questioning him. A few people there though, including one of the leaders, their heads went from shaking to nodding along at some point. And just remember, on that day, those people found salvation. Those people found eternal life. I love the fact, I've pointed this out in Acts already, but there's a reason it tells you Dionysius and Damaris became Christians. Because if you were back then, you could have gone and found them and said, is it true that you became a Christian that day? Just a reminder, this is history. It's not some made-up story. This is the real story of the power of God to save people. And I want to say to you, that is the power of the gospel. And as we saw last week, it's powerful to save a prison guard in Philippi just like it's powerful to save this wise Dionysius the Areopagite who would have been a philosopher. Just remember that. The gospel is powerful enough to save a homeless person or, or, or the wealthiest person in the world. It's, it, it's powerful to save an uneducated person or, or the head lecturer of philosophy because the power of the gospel is needed for everyone. Don't ever doubt the power of the gospel. As I close, what should we take from this great passage? Well, first of all, I pray you know 
that gospel. That's my first prayer, that you know that gospel. I pray that if you don't, that like Dionysius, you might say, I want to know more. That's my first prayer. But my second prayer is that we would see the world and people through God's eyes, like Paul did. I pray that it does grieve us when we look at our city and we see that there are all these people who don't know their right hand from their left. All these people living hopeless lives with no hope for eternity. I pray that it grieves us. I pray that we would have eyes that see things the way God sees him. But then I want to say, please do not let that drive you to judgment of others. So again, my prayer is like Paul, it might drive us to share the truth about Jesus. My prayer is that every one of us would be ready and willing to reason with people. That every member of St. George North would be able to give the reason for their hope. That every one of us would be able to invite someone to come to know the hope we have found in Jesus. Because that is what our city needs more than anything else. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible sermon from 2,000 years ago. And we thank you that it reminds us that your gospel is powerful to save. But we pray that you would give us eyes that see like you see our city that people are lost without Jesus and need the good news of the gospel. Help us not to withdraw from our city and stand in judgment, but instead help us to give the reason for our hope, being ready to reason with people so that they might come to know Jesus like we have. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.